Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Ronnie Janoff-Bullman, author of the new book, The Two Moralities, Conservatives, Liberals and the Roots of Our Political Divide. Uh, Ronnie, welcome to Bookstack and congratulations on the book. So what are these two moralities? The two moralities reflect the most fundamental distinction in psychology, approach and avoidance. We're motivated to approach the good and avoid the bad. And when we apply this to morality, I distinguish between a proscriptive morality, which is focused on what we should not do and defends against negative outcomes, and a prescriptive morality that's actually focused on what we should do and moves us towards positive outcomes. So most generally, prescriptive morality provides for the well-being of others, Proscriptive morality protects us from harm, or protects others from harm, I should say. Now, I do want to say that in our interpersonal relationships, these moralities that look like helping and not harming in the interpersonal domain do not differ for liberals and conservatives. And by the way, not harming is not the same as helping. Think about toddlers, toddlers who don't take others' toys are engaging in proscriptive morality. Toddlers who share their toys with others are engaging in prescriptive morality. These are not the same. And I should note that developmental psychologists find that sharing is much harder than refraining from toy taking. But in the group context, when we move to the group level, which is the domain of politics, we find that these two moralities diverge, and one is favored by liberals and the other by conservatives. Liberalism is rooted in a prescriptive social justice morality that's focused on providing for the well-being of the nation's constituents. Well, conservatism is rooted in a proscriptive social order morality that's focused on protecting, and specifically protecting against internal and external threats and maintaining the stability of the nation. So we're talking about protect-provide differences, liberalism and conservatism. So what do we actually mean by liberalism and conservatism in this psychological definition? Because clearly what you've just described there is not just about politics. There are conservatives, for example... Within the Democratic Party, there are liberals within the Republican Party. Certainly that's been true historically. Uh, Political parties are made up of complex alliances and coalitions of of different interests and so on. So how do we work around that difference politically from what you've just described there psychologically? In fact, you're quite right that historically political parties were not aligned with morality. But in the United States today, in fact, that alignment is almost perfect. So when I was growing up, um, I'm now 71 years old, quite old, Nelson Rockefeller and Jacob Javits were liberal Republicans, and Strauss Thurman and Lester Maddox, incredible racists, were Democrats. They They were conservative Democrats. Those liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats are, in fact, extinct species in the United States today. And we have morality and party almost perfectly aligned, which may have a lot to do with the polarization. When I study these liberals and conservatives, I actually have people self-defined as liberals and conservatives. I don't define it for them. But when we do research and survey research, we ask if they have a party identification. We also ask how liberal or conservative they are, whether they define themselves as one or the other. So I'm actually thinking of it as a social identity that people claim. And of course, we have many social identities. But these days, liberal, conservative, and party are very closely aligned. So you talk about um, the difference between distinct moralities and personal differences. What, what is that distinction? One thing that has become interesting to me when 
looking at these moralities as if there are other features of people and environments that follow directly from them. So, for example, effective political messaging reflects these differences because on the left, there is a focus on hope and optimism, whereas on the, on the right, there's a focus on fear. Um, the whole di idea about protecting from threats, the more you can make fear and dystopias very salient, the more likely people are going to want to look at being, a, being conservative. But the psychological attributes of liberals and conservatives are also quite consistent with these moralities. So conservatives in the laboratory, conservatives are actually very well attuned to threat. They're, they're considered high in threat sensitivity. Many other people have done this research, much, much more than I have, actually. There is a negativity bias. In fact, there's a focus on um, losses. If you have people come into a laboratory and look at various stimuli, you'll find that conservatives with eye tracking will focus on negative stimuli online, whereas liberals do not do that. They explore the entire positive and negative stimuli. Psychological attribute that most characterizes liberals is what psychologists call psychological openness. This is a, an openness to uh, novelty, for example, a willingness to explore. And of course, these differences, again, reflect the basic, very basic approach avoidance differences of the two moralities. And from a, an academic and uh, psychological, social psychologist's point of view, how do you avoid kind of falling into just kind of very broad-based generalizations about these kind of complex positions? In other words, how do you, how do you draw conclusions which, you know, maintain the kind of the academic sophistication of the, of the study? So social psychologists are very interested in these broad, general group differences. When we even do our statistical analyses, we're looking at um, group averages. So one thing I should say is, of course, there's going to be variability within groups. Some people will be higher or lower in any given dimension. But in order to describe the world, to make sense of the world, humans categorize. So in many ways, we are. I'm painting with a very broad brush, and I will... Um, if you look at, for example, personality or clinical psychology, the focus there is all on variability or very much on variability. Um, social psychologists really are interested in, in this broad paintbrush, um, try to understand that general categories, general differences. And as I said, it can't be completely accurate. It doesn't take into account all the variability. So I, I think it's both strength in that it enables us to make some sense of the world and move on from there and a weakness, um, which, which I think you're pointing out. Yeah, and actually it's one of the pleasing things about the book that you're very upfront about these kind of difficulties in kind of moving backwards and forwards between the specific and the, and the general. One example that struck me in the book, that the conservative position is anti-abortion. Um, but, you know, I wonder whether by asking the question in that way that the, there's a danger of, of flattening out an incredibly complex question and the responses to it. For example, Kentucky, which is a predominantly conservative state, um, voted or rejected a ballot measure aimed at denying constitutional protections for abortion. So, you know, not anti-abortions in kind of that case, because it's a very, it's a very complex, multifaceted question, which has responses which are similarly multifaceted. Yes. And, and by the way, in those cases, I'm using polling data and uh, survey data. I didn't collect the data on abortion myself. If you look, the majority, for example, you ask, should there be a ban on abortions? 
um, the majority of Republicans still, the fact that something came out yesterday, 38% say yes. And of course, something close to 85% of, of Democrats say no. There still are these broad differences. Yeah. And I, I suppose I could, I could flip the argument as well that you know, similarly, if you're saying that liberals favor a woman's right to choose, but that, you know, if you believe that abortion should only be available at 16, 18, 24 weeks, um, does that mean you're not liberal? Um, so I just, I just use these as examples of how these terms, when it comes to these kind of complex moral and ethical issues, kind of can only take us so far. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, again, it's more or less looking at a pattern, you know, conservatives are more likely to be anti-abortion. But, you know, if you look at the same thing with same-sex marriage for years, obviously this was different, left-right difference. Thankfully, um, with greater openness by the LGBTQ community and so forth, and people knowing these are their sons, daughters, best friends, etc., this has become a much more open issue that's divided, in fact, still by liberal and conservative. There's no question. but even more by age with younger people this you know are very open whether you tend to be left or right older people less so. politics characterizes the beliefs of the older folks much more but there's still i think in general one thing i could say is that when you think about protection and providing there is no necessary connection between let's say abortion and conservatism i mean to protect and believe in stability of a nation, you could choose other issues. So, for example, it would have made great sense to me, or would still make great sense to me, um, if conservatives really were very, very, very in favor of same-sex marriage. Marriage, um, I've been married 50 years now, and believe it, but it's a very conservative institution. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful if, on the right, there was a support for this, for same-sex marriage, because it's a conservative institution. But instead, what conservatives went for is the nature of the social role, believing that it has to be between a man and a woman. There's no, in other words, I'm trying to say there's no necessary connection between particular issues and conservatism. Yeah, which, which is interesting because it's, it's a contrast to the European experience where countries like uh, the UK, for example, Ireland... Um, it, it was con essentially conservative parties that introduced the legislation that, uh, for example, legalized gay marriage and so on. Yes, I mean, which is a, a fabulous example. So, so I think the, the, the goal to protect the country, I think, would still be an underlying dimension or characterization of conservatism. In other words, I think the two moralities would still be there, which, which parties can decide on what would best fulfill those goals. You know, I think it's too bad the conservatives didn't go that direction. I think things are moving there now, thankfully, um, on both sides of the aisle. But, you know, in some ways, some of the issues you've raised, I think it's a very point well taken that the issues themselves, even though these days, these are the issues the parties have chosen to, because tradition and defined social roles in general sort of may help maintain stability for the people on the right. But the specific issues are different. You know, we may have 10, 15 years from now, maybe, you know, the Republican Party will realize that abortion is no longer a good thing to be trying to sell and would move to something else. Who knows what, right? 
And it, it's interesting that uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the tone of debate as well as the substance of it. At, at one point, you talk about needing to lower the temperature rather than throwing fuel on the fire uh, and so on. Uh, I mean, even from your position as a social psychologist, you know, I, I wonder how important is that question of tone uh, the way in which debate is conducted, which does seem to be something that is is so clearly important to the way in which kind of politics is moving at the moment. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you think about um, diversity, for example, in the United States, allyship has gone up in general. People who run diversity centers, you know, say folks want to talk to each other. You know, there's a fear among, for example, whites. They're, they're sort of terrified to talk, making a mistake, saying the wrong thing. So that's not what's happening in the case of politics. Nobody's afraid of saying the wrong thing. In politics, basically, people are terrified. They really just don't want to see the other person. They don't want to be with the other person. They can't stand the other person. The demonization um, and demeaning of motives is incredible. The distrust is tremendous. You know, getting people to the table to talk in a civil way, is difficult. I think if you got people to the table, people would recognize that we share loads of things as human beings, and we could talk to each other, but nobody wants to. You know, there's such tremendous distrust. In part, I think, Richard, you know, the voices we hear are the most extreme, loudest, angriest voices. Um, that doesn't help. But the other thing is there's something about morality, the uniqueness of morality that contributes, I think, to the intolerance. So social psychologists have looked at moral conviction and how it, they, they do differ from all sorts of, in fact, from all other attitudinal conviction. Whereas, you know, moral convictions arouse stronger emotions. They, they are treated like facts. People think they're absolute. And basically, if I'm right, you're wrong. If you're right, I'm wrong. There's tremendous intolerance around moral morality because people do think you know, it's not attitudes like preferences. They seem to be um, something people feel should be universal. In the laboratories, you bring people in to talk about a, an issue like abortion or, you know, a, a moral issue they have a disagreement about. They will move their chairs further from each other. That's how, you know, the, the intolerance is even sort of evidence in, in the physical setting of the environment. Um, so there's something about morality that contributes to, to this temperature. So I'm hoping that if people, I, I'm not Pollyannist, I don't think reading a book is, you know, one book makes a huge difference, but if it at least raises the question in people's mind that, whoa, is that person really less moral than I am? Is that really a worse person? Is that person's motives worse? Um, I would be happy. I mean, I would think that, you know, a book is not a practical guide. I just, I really was just trying to present a new framework could hopefully help detoxify things over time. Because I do think there's something unique about morality. And social psychologists have shown that in a great deal of research. And that, you know, essentially it's, it's kind of trying to recognize that problem or deal with that problem of the unwillingness to recognize that someone can come at a question from a morally defensible position, even though that position might be the, the exact polar opposite to your own position. Yes. You stated that beautifully. Yeah. I like to think of this, Richard, as I, I think of something I, I call the Liz Cheney effect. So Liz Cheney, you know, was so vocal in, in her opposition to Trump and, in fact, you know, sacrificed her political career for it. 
Now, Liz Cheney, interestingly, myself and probably most liberals probably don't agree with her on any issue or virtually any issue. I shouldn't say that. I don't know all of her beliefs. But on many hot-button issues, we would disagree. And yet, I think most liberals or many liberals would be happy to sit at a table with Liz Cheney and discuss governing, recognizing that, you know, governing involves debate. It involves uh, sort of talking things out and involves compromise. You know, half the nation, approximately half the nation, votes Republican regardless of who's running. And approximately half the nation votes Democrat regardless of who's running. And you know, that means we've got to compromise. That's what governing is all about. Somehow we've given that up. We don't even want to talk to the other side. It's, it's my way or the highway. But I, I do think Liz Cheney is an interesting example of precisely what you were just talking about, Richard, which is, you know, people can come at things from very different perspectives, moral perspectives, in this case, and be moral. In other words, there's another level of morality that's about honesty, integrity, suppressing selfishness, et cetera, et cetera that we could also turn to, right? And this is about group-based morality, how to govern a country, how to regulate the morality writ large, which is quite different, right? Uh, at least in my mind. And you know, presumably, the, I mean, the, the, using that kind of group, that sense of group morality, the very, very often the kind of the acts that we recognize or need to be recognized are those where people do what they think it is the correct thing morally, even though it goes against the group. So you use Liz Cheney as an example there. Um, you know, perhaps Mike Pence as vice president on January the 6th um, has often been cited as a, another example. Um, John Roberts as um, the ch chief justice uh, in some of his rulings and so on. I mean, those, those are all conservative examples, but, you know, there are, there are others too. Even more recently, the president coming to a deal uh, with the Speaker of the House is is used as an example of, you know, perhaps putting aside partisan, um, a kind of a complete partisan point of view and being able to kind of work together and, t and take what your opponent is doing in good faith, essentially. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And if you think about how we move forward from here, I mean, you know, it's a fairly depressing kind of political in the sense of, you know, we have an upcoming election and the angry voices are very loud already, not that they've ever quieted down. But to move forward, the left and the non-MAGA right are going to have to work together in, in the United States. There's just no question about it. It's also very interesting that when you look at the polarization in the U.S. It, and, and the result of what's called global party survey, the Democratic Party of the United States is now still considered a mainstream liberal party. There are differences, you know, more or less progressive, but it's considered a mainstream political party. The Republican Party in the United States is now considered basically an alt-right party, an anti-democratic party like Turkey's Justice and Development Party or Poland's Law and Justice Party. It has moved very much to the right. And yet we know in the Republican Party there are many non-alt-right, non-MAGA folks who are looking for a home, actually, um, or looking for a return to the old party. It's those people, I think, who will need to join with Democrats. And Democrats have to be open to this. That is, there will have to be some compromises moving ahead in order to reclaim or preserve a democracy with its, all its warts and flaws. I can't see any, any other way of, of, of doing this. And I do think your, your comment about there are people out there who have already shown how much integrity they have by being willing to stand up 
and um, sacrifice in many ways the 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 easy labels. I, I think it, it is encouraging. So I don't know. You're in the UK now. I don't really know. I know for Boris Johnson, for example, is probably going to you know have a hard time in Parliament, or Trump is not having a hard time in the House of Representatives here. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's one of the, the mistakes actually that is often made that connection between Trump uh, and and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is no longer in Parliament. Actually, he's he's just um, resigned as an MP after a parliamentary report uh, found found against him. Um, but you know, I think the the broader the broader point is an interesting one about this different kind of politics. And you know, I wonder whether. Again, from your uh, position as a as a social psychologist, we often hear it's become almost a cliche that the new fragmented media environment has exacerbated uh, all of this. You know, obviously those days of uh, Walter Cronkite and the the six six thirty news and so on are long gone, uh, and they had their own problems too. After all, this is you know that kind of authority actually ended up with the the Vietnam War and so on. But, you know, I wonder whether you think that the media environment that we have has contributed to this kind of increasing chasm between the two sides that you've identified in the book. Absolutely. I couldn't support that strongly enough. Not just media, social media, what's online. Absolutely. We are now in our own silos. So you have you know, MSNBC on the left, you have Fox News on the right, um, you have CNN in the middle struggling, <laughs> trying to do both sides. I, I have to say, though, people like to confirm their own views. So in part, it's not just what's online, it's what people want to hear. In part, we like confirming what we believe and um, are not looking for, you know, sort of greater openness. I wish we all were. But the fact that media is now entertainment um, means that the loudest, angriest voices get out there. So between people's own motivation to confirm, to justify their own positions, our own positions, I'm there, you know, speaking about me too, and what the media presents, which tend to be just the extremes, the voices on the ends, not the middle. You rarely hear People in the middle or anybody's voice bo voicing both sides. Rarely do you hear that. So I am totally with you on that. And, you know, Trump, the Trump show is now continuing again. We're inundated with Trump news and it just fills the airwaves. It's, it's just it's so disheartening. And you, know, you use that word disheartening. I, I wonder, finally, Ronnie, how hopeful you are for the future of American politics. I mean, on on one level... Is this just cyclical? There's the the election of 1800, the Civil War era, uh, the the kind of divide during during the, the the New Deal, the uncivil war of the the 60s, the Iraq War at the beginning of this century. Or do you think that this is is something that is different from a, a psychological? and political point of view that uh, kind of flashes red for danger, particularly? You know, I think anything I say about the cyclical nature of this would be just a guess, to be honest. But what I want to say is I do think there are red flags out there. I do think that, um, at least for my lifetime, right now in my lifetime, this has been, this is a very dangerous time. The threats to the democracy, I think, are real with a, with a party that's moved very, very, very much to the right. Now, how hopeful am I? 
you know, it's interesting. Social psychology would say to bring people together, you need some, you know, some challenge everybody can work on together. And, you know, unfortunately for that to work today, it would probably take some, something cataclysmic, like, you know, sort of AI um, subjugating humans or something. <laughs> Yeah, and unfortunately, historically speaking, those things are usually wars, and we we don't want one of those. Right, and I so I was going to say, or an attack on the Fed. Now that is not that's not a place I want to go. Right, I do think one great threat, though, increasingly that people are beginning to recognize is a threat to democracy. So as awful as that is, the one sort of piece of optimism I hold. It derives from A, Trump losing the last election, and B, the 2022 midterm elections. Really, despite all polls, which said, you know, it was going to be a red wave and the big lie was going to take over, despite that, the American public voted against the big lie. Election deniers were thrown out across, or were not elected across the board, and it wasn't a red wave at all. Now, that gives me some hope that A, Polls, you know, they, they haven't always been very accurate, the polling. That B, people on the left and the right can come together for the purpose of preserving democracy. Recent research has shown that both people on the left and the right believe very strongly in retaining the democracy and the ideals of the nation, and yet think those on the other side of the political aisle don't care at all. They, now, that election sort of said to me, there was evidence that people on both sides care. Moving forward to the extent that we can let people sort of know each other better. I mean, we need some contact. We need dialogue. We need the press to report the non-sexy stories of people on the left and right, both caring about the country, for example. They could help us move forward. Am I very optimistic? No. Do I have a bit of it, a glimmer of it? Yes. I, I want to believe this can work out. So the book is The Two Moralities, Conservatives, Liberals and the Roots of Our Political Divide. It's written by my guest, Ronnie Janoff-Bullman, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, But for now, Ronnie, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. (laughs) 